0: its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. American singer Alicia Keys famously described New York City as a concrete jungle where dreams are made in her song, New York State of Mind. Keys' imagery speaks true to the landscape of the Big Apple, which is characterized by pavement and skyscrapers. But as many urban locales know all too well, abundant asphalt, concrete, and other aspects of a densely populated environment create a heat island effect in which ambient temperatures are amplified. This phenomenon will only increase as a result of the climate crisis, and not all communities will be affected equally. Cities' temperature challenges come from large quantities of pavement, other materials used for infrastructure, and ground-level ozone pollution, all of which can absorb and trap heat. To make matters worse, tall buildings obstruct cooling winds that could provide relief. Los Angeles, Houston, San Francisco, and Dubai are just a few urban destinations finding themselves in need of strategies to address the wide-ranging impacts of excessive heat. Communities with lower incomes and larger populations of Black and Hispanic residents often experience greater exposure to heat islands, and these communities, along with women, children, the elderly, and the immunocompromised, suffer disproportionately from associated health impacts. But the good news is that a combination of technological and natural cooling tactics can be deployed to create shade, improve air quality, and ultimately reduce urban air temperatures. During this conversation, our innovators will share their work related to urban cooling and their visions for the future of sustainable cities. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Kate Mingoya, National Director for Climate Resilience and Land Use at Groundwork USA, and Bryn Lindblad. Deputy Director of Climate Resolve. Welcome to both of you. Kate, I'm gonna start with you today. Could you give us your brief introduction to Groundwork USA to really kickstart our conversation? Yeah, thanks so
1: much for having me. And thank you, everyone, for being here. So I work with Groundwork USA, which is the national support organization for 22 people-centered environmental justice organizations. We're usually in the second or third largest city in any given state. So everywhere from San Diego to Dallas, Jacksonville to Lawrence, Massachusetts. And our work is to put residents in the driver's seat about making changes to their built environment so they can live in the clean, green, healthy spaces that they deserve to live in and that they want to live in. And that's everything from acting as an urban force and helping to densify the city's tree canopy cover to improve air quality and bring the temperature down to taking over contaminated plots of land and transforming them into community assets. So things like parks, um, urban farms, trail systems, things like that. Uh, And then over the last couple of years, we've focused really deeply on climate adaptation because we know that low income communities and communities of color are gonna be the ones that are gonna struggle the most with the climate crisis and are already struggling the most. So we, um, as part of our Climate Safe Neighborhoods partner partnership, work closely with residents to understand why their communities look the way that they do, uh, identify resident priorities for the changes they'd like to see in their community, um, and help to build their capacity to intervene in the systems that have made some neighborhoods hotter and wetter, um, in some cases, drier or more prone to fire than other neighborhoods, um, and to get a more equitable distribution of resources at the local level so they can keep their communities safe from the climate crisis, so, so happy to be here.
0: Thanks, Kate. And Bryn, would you please tell us a bit about Climate Resolve, you know, before we dive into some of your more specific projects?
2: Sure, and thank you for having me here this morning, uh, or afternoon for some of you. Uh, We, Climate Resolve, we are a Los Angeles-based organization, and we work to inclusively develop and champion practical local solutions to climate change. Um, so that's focusing on promoting solutions that improve equity and really improve quality of life, too, uh, especially for our most vulnerable at-risk people. Our work falls into, I'd say, two big buckets. Um, the first is tackling our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions, and that's cars. Uh, so we're trying to improve transportation options so that people don't have to drive as much. Uh, Part of that involves curbing like outward sprawl development patterns, um, but also making our our urban uh, core, our urban city environment more inclusive and affordable. Um, Also involves improving public transit options, so they're more accessible and convenient and making neighborhoods more walkable and bikeable uh, with better air quality, um, safer, more pleasant passageways, so people aren't having to play a game of chicken with cars out there uh, being king of the road all the time. And our, our other big bucket of work, which really overlaps with our, our mobility work, uh, is about preparing for the impacts of climate change. Um, in in LA, the big one that we're seeing there is heat. Um, so our days that are over 95 degrees Fahrenheit, um, that's 35 degrees Celsius. Uh, those days, we call them extreme heat days, are on the rise. Um, so we're expecting two to three times as many of those extreme heat days within the next 20 to 30 years. Um, and in some parts of our region, it's already over a third of the year um, are, are experiencing those extreme heat days. So those are days when it's, it's really expensive to be cranking the air conditioning. Um, it's, it's dangerous for people who work outside or, or in non-air-conditioned warehouses, say. Um, there can be heat strokes and, and trigger respiratory and cardiovascular attacks. Um, has been deemed the called the silent killer um, and, and causes more harm to public health than all other weather related phenomena combined. Um and it's not just that, there's sort of student learning suffers from um during heat fatigue and have seen violent crime spike as well when people are are getting hot and bothered in that heat. Uh, and it, it doesn't come as a surprise, I'm sure, and thank you for the for the introductions, Aubrey and Kate, um, but heat is, is most oppressive and severe in our formerly redlined low-income parts of town, where trees are scarce and asphalt is plenty. Um, so we're really focused on trying to change what our streets look and feel like. Um, by and It can help us get people out of cars and address that urban heel island in one fellow swoop. Uh, and it's it's not just like a Band-Aid approach, but actually trying to tackle the root cause of heat disparities. Um, so that's a little preview of what urban cooling is about for us, trying to make it so that living in cities doesn't feel like living in an oven. Always a good thing. <laughs> so
0: uh, I want to kickstart this conversation um, with you, Kate. In our previous conversation, you, you told me that achieving urban cooling isn't simply about planting more trees in a community. It's also about understanding systems that have prevented trees from being planted in communities in the first place. I thought that was really eloquently put. Can you really elaborate on this two-pronged approach? Yeah.
1: Um, So when I uh, had my first adult apartment, I grew up in New York City. I lived between 135th Street, uh, between Broadway and Amsterdam. And it's an area that was formerly redlined, had no trees on it when I moved in. Um, And one day I came home from work. I was a public school teacher at the time. And the city had planted about every eight feet trees across the entire length of the avenue. I went inside, did my night routine. And then in the morning when I went to go back to school, I stepped outside and every single one of the heads of the trees had been snapped off all the way down the block. There was a woman who was a big, um, who was really important in the community and she was our first floor neighbor and was at her window at the time. And I said, what happened here? And she said, they didn't ask us. And I think that one of the things that we need to think about when we look at the way that our communities are, as as Bryn had noticed, our communities don't look the way that they do by accident. Neighborhoods that are formerly redlined um, are on average 4.5 degrees hotter than their formerly greenlined counterparts, but that can be as extreme as 20 degrees Fahrenheit at the same time um, on the same day. And we know that these formerly redlined neighborhoods are about 75% low to moderate income and 66% Majority minority, Um, so our neighborhoods don't look the way that they do by accident. There's a reason that they do. So when we at Groundwork think about making changes to the built environment to help reduce the impact of heat, we're not interested in coming, dropping in a bunch of green infrastructure, and saying like, "Best of luck, peace out." We need to ask the question. Why has change not yet come about? And that's where we're interested in taking a dual-pronged approach. The first one is understanding the systems that have kept certain neighborhoods hotter and more vulnerable than other neighborhoods. So that's looking at things like how are resources distributed during a master planning process and during budgetary cycles? Um, who Does the uh, city have an urban forestry program? How much are residents brought into the siting of green infrastructure and then the long-term stewardship of that green infrastructure? But at the same time, systems change takes a really, really long time and people are suffering now. So we're also interested in doing things like um, installing, tree, installing trees and installing things like um, bus shelters so that if you are waiting for a, a bus that's, you know, coming once every 20 minutes, you're not sitting in oppressive 100 degree heat with the, the sun on your face sweating through your work clothes. So we're interested in this two-pronged approach of understanding why communities look the way that they do because they look like this for a reason. It's not an accident, um, but we're also interested in making that, um, Making that change. Uh, One of the examples that we work with in our Climate Safe Neighborhoods Partnership is in uh, Rhode Island, just north of Providence, uh, where the uh, relatively small city um, was only planting about 50 trees per year and was doing it on a first come first serve basis. So people in wealthier neighborhoods, they would call up, request a tree as soon as the trees open, boom, those 50 trees would be gone in about a day, leaving the more vulnerable neighborhoods without the tree canopy cover that they deserve. This is not just a planning issue. It's not just a climate issue. It's a public health issue. So uh, we collaborated really closely with residents to understand their priorities and the change they would like to see in terms of what areas were hot. Is it around your house? Is it the route to school? Is it the route to work? What can we do to make um, the world, not just more livable and survivable, but more enjoyable and more joyful so that you can exist in these spaces and safety. Um, and we're able to work with public health coalitions to get the city to change the way that they distributed from a first come first serve model to instead one that prioritizes neighborhoods with a high heat vulnerability index which which means places that are hot, but people are vulnerable because they don't have enough money. So that's one of the examples of a systems change approach that we take.
0: Thank you. And I think a really great way to lead into my next question for Bryn, actually, because Climate Resolve has its own two-pronged holistic approach uh, to urban cooling, which often involves the use of innovative cooling technologies like cool roofing or cool pavement alongside tree planting. So can you tell us why this dual approach is important to your work?
2: Sure, and I will just say everything Kate just mentioned about sort of practical on the ground and um, big picture systematic um approach all resonates um, as well. So, but um sure the two-prong approach I wanted to talk about was um both trees and um reflective surfaces. Uh and so we found that um you know we've got we've got some pretty severe um heat, we've got a climate crisis on our hand, and so just pursuing one strategy at a time isn't really going to cut it. Uh, and we see better results if we use more of the tools in our toolbox. Um, and so, when we've gone in before with, say, just cool pavement, people have been wanting the trees too. They've missed the trees. Um, and if we've come in with just trees in some of those really hot um, parts of town, we've found those those little new sapling trees have, have struggled um, to take life and have, have withered and, and really just not um, taken well in those harsh conditions. Um, so. We're you know, we've taken to now packaging up multiple strategies into more comprehensive projects um and find in doing so we get a little, little something for everyone um, and and a more effective um, impact in the end so I'd like to take a second to explain cool roofs um and and cool pavements I'm not sure if everyone in the audience has heard of those um but so if you can think of a normal um, asphalt parking lot, blacktop, um, and it is just like radiating heat under your feet. Um, so that that dark surface, um, it really it absorbs most of the sun rays that hit it uh, and then re-radiates it as heat. Um, whereas a more reflective, we call them cool surface, um, is often often lighter colored, but um, but not necessarily. Uh, and it just does a, a better job of reflecting more of that sun, those sun rays back as as light, uh, and as kind of an added benefit, um, that reflected light stays energetic enough that most of it makes its way uh, back out into space and doesn't get trapped in our atmosphere. So it's sign that it, it does help address the underlying cause of climate change as well. Um, but so we found, you know, if we were to replace um, just like 30 percent of the pavement in our city. Um, a you know, typical American city, like 40% of it is covered in asphalt. Um, if we replace just like a third of that, we could reduce the urban heat island by five degrees. Um, so that's about as much as we're seeing climate change adding heat to our, our local environment, um, we could counteract that with with cool surfaces. Um, there's some, some other benefits to cool pavement, too. We find um, that there's less wear and tear when that surface of the road is is not as hot, um, so less, less particulate matter, uh, which is better for air quality, um, less wear and tear both of kind of the pavement surface but also of tires um, that are driving over those roads. Um, yeah. So, you know, in L.A., we've come to pair trees and cool pavement together, and we call it our cool street program. Um, and just, you know, trying to trying to make the projects look so good that people just, just can't refuse it. Um, even if, even if change can be, can be scary and and even if it involves some loss of parking.
0: (laughs) Understood. Um, Kate, I'm going to jump back to you now. You, uh, previewed the climate safe neighborhoods project of groundwork USA. Um in your introduction, it's your, your flagship effort related to climate resilience. Can you just tell us a little bit about how this project uses maps and climate data to, I would say, really demonstrate the long-term effects of historical housing policies on heat and flood vulnerability and what what is the big goal of the project?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, I just wanted to mention when, Bryn, when you mentioned that the saplings, I think so much about the little tree I have outside of my house that was planted four years ago that's casting a shadow about the size and shape of a pizza box. So it takes a while for some of these interventions to really cool spaces. And so we do need that multimodal approach. Um, but back to the data in climate safe neighborhoods. Um, I actually find like maps and data to not be super useful by themselves. If they're a standalone item, if you're st- presenting someone a spreadsheet or some sort of a map, um, it's not really useful. But what's helpful is that maps can serve as a neutral platform for conversations about equity that bridge what happened in the past to what residents hope they're going to be able to see in the future. So in our case, we make use of a bunch of different types of data, Um, things like historical redlining maps that show us which neighborhoods have histories of race-based housing segregation. And just a footnote, like not only about 200 cities in the United States were redlined, but I promise you if your community existed before an 1970, there is some sort of history of race-based housing discrimination at the state or municipal level that exists. So redlining is a proxy, but there's lots of other things like urban renewal um, that that you can, or or housing covenants that you can take a look at. Um, And so we look at the historical race-based housing segregation, and then we look at things like tree canopy cover, um, impermeable pavement, so things like parking lots, driveways, roads, things like that. Tree canopy cover, heat, uh, flood vulnerability, and use these to spark conversations with residents about why our communities look the way that they do, and what types of changes they would like to see. And if you speak to any resident in any community, they can give you the lowdown on what's working and not working in their community. Um, they'll tell you which intersections are really hot. They'll tell you that their basement floods. They'll talk about air quality. They'll talk about not having enough water to be able to maintain a yard or a garden. Um, but While it would be wonderful for all of the systems to sort of take that anecdotal evidence very seriously and they should do it, um, we also sometimes need a little bit of, so we use things like Landsat data that NASA provides and helps us to process um, to turn it into maps to get a better understanding of our built environment. Um, One example of this is in Denver, Colorado. We are working in a neighborhood called Global Alaria Swansea. It's home to a former lead smelting plant. So the entire neighborhood is actually a super fun site. A lot of environmental justice issues. And when we were going through the maps with residents, One of the women um, from the community called us over and said, hey, did you notice that where we're sitting right now, there's 1% tree canopy cover? But if you get on the number 12 bus and you take it across the river in Denver to this formerly green line neighborhood, you're about 26% tree canopy cover. Get off that bus and walk over to where the bus line does not go and there's no public transportation. You're looking at tree canopy cover, cover that's close to 64%. So residents were able to use this to come up with a concrete ask. In our community, we want 10,000 trees and a say in future funding distribution for green infrastructure. Um, and that creates a focused, um, both a catalyst and an area of focus for residents to Pursue when they're looking at changing the way that systems function and the way that that resources are developed. And I'll sum up by saying that one of the things that's been so uh, surprising to me about utilizing these maps to talk about things like heat and flood vulnerability is that they serve as this neutral platform for conversations. I think that in our culture, we're not always great about talking about um, the climate crisis or race in exactly the same way. We don't always have the same foundation or same backgrounds that we're coming to the table with. Um, But these maps um, help to bridge that. It's no longer your ancestors versus my ancestors, your view of the climate crisis versus my view of the climate crisis. It's we live in the same city and there's a problem. Why is it that the northern part of Richmond, Virginia, where it's majority black is a lot hotter than the southern part? Why is it that the northern part of Elizabeth, New Jersey, where mostly Latino residents live, has no tree canopy cover? It forces us to ask some questions that then lead to a vision of the future.
0: That's really well said, and and I, I really resonate with that idea of the map is the common ground. Um, I guess pun pun not intended, but but there you go, um, Bryn. Um, I'm going to turn back to you now. Uh, as you've hinted at, much of Climate Resolve's urban cooling work has targeted Los Angeles communities that are more likely to walk, bike, or use public transportation, and so as a result, your heat response efforts have often paired um, with tactics to you know, improve transit safety. So what does this sort of strategy look like in action?
2: Sure, um, and I'll say, you know, part of the reason for that approach um, is we're really going going for equity. Um, and so focusing on urban cooling efforts that that benefit um, those who are, who are most vulnerable to heat exposure. Um, and so looking at the hottest parts of town um, where you tend to have lower income households um, and more transit dependent folks. Uh, and so we were trying to make their, their non-car options more hospitable and appealing. Um, so. What that can look like um, is is say bike lanes um, that aren't just like paint next to parked cars where there's still that hazard of, of a car door opening and hitting bikes um, and you know if there's I don't know if, if how many of you are, are bike around town but so many of the like the paint buffers that go down on the streets cars just end up parking in them and it's not really doing um, that job of, of protecting um, bike lanes and so Rather than that, uh, rather than paint, um, there's an opportunity there to begin green infrastructure in our in our streets to to function as that um, protected median um, for bike lanes. Um, and so, you know, adding in bike lanes, we start to have our like main commercial corridors feeling um, more like main streets and less like freeways. Uh, there can maybe some community concern that that car traffic is going to go into into neighborhood streets, like residential streets, and those will um, start to feel dangerous. And so um, then we've added in roundabouts into some of those those calmer neighborhood streets to to keep um, to keep traffic from speeding through there. And again, those roundabouts are another opportunity for greening um, and stormwater management, and to kind of smooth out some of the the rapid braking and acceleration, which is um, improves our local air quality. Um, sidewalks are a perfect opportunity to be getting some greening in there too, right? Street trees um, should be there to give shade for pedestrians um, and helps kind of slow down traffic and leads to fewer crashes and, and good for our local business. Um, but, you know, sometimes we've found then is adding in new, sh- new shade trees on sidewalks. Community members have wanted lighting that goes underneath those trees. They don't want the shadows cast by some of those trees. Um, so it's trying to be attuned to some of those um community needs and how um different strategies um get paired together um bus shelters. I'm glad Kate you mentioned that, but that's another big opportunity we found um integrating hydration stations into our bus shelters. We found community members also finding um that they're really gonna find that heat oppressive when they're waiting at a crosswalk waiting for a signal to turn, and so trying to get stretched canvas um out in any little like plaza areas or any sort of um just trying to find. You know ways we can protect um, protect people from heat um, wherever it is it is hitting them most. Um, and by kind of piecing all those things together, um, so it's not just like fragmented puzzle pieces here and there, but um, put them together in a holistic approach. You really start to to get something more transformational um, and really really desirable, and people feel that difference in their everyday lives and are loving it.
0: I love hearing about these different strategies because it feels like they're so tailorable to different communities and their needs, which I think is something that really resonates regardless of what topic we're talking about, but certainly here for the urban cooling conversation. And something that you just mentioned, Bryn, that I think is going to lead me into a question for Kate is is the idea of, um, yeah, these are green spaces that'll help reduce heat but there's stormwater management applications as well. So, Kate, I wanted to ask you, how are the issues of excess heat and flooding connected in the urban areas in which you work, and what does that mean for the solutions that your organization co-creates with communities? Mm -hmm. There's a huge opportunity to
1: pet multiple cats with one hand when it comes to green infrastructure. Um, You mentioned, Bryn, the uh, brought back to the bus shelters in one of our trusts, uh, Grammar. New Orleans, um, they're worried both about heat and extreme flood. New Orleans is sinking, it's it's a bowl shape and it's it's sinking as water gets pumped out to keep the city safe. And they have huge rain events. I was just there a couple of weeks ago and was I had never been to New Orleans, got caught in a rainstorm and you can be out for 30 minutes and find yourself with 12 to 18 inches of stagnant water in some low lying areas in a really short period of time. Um, and so the opportunity to do double duty. One of the projects that I think is really exciting and um, inspiring is Groundwork New Orleans. Um, uh, has these uh, solar benches. They are effectively considered like a bus shelter that has a, a top and casts shade. It's pretty wide, pretty big. It's accessible to people with disabilities, accessible to folks who are, who are waiting, you know, potentially for buses or just looking for a place to, to cool down. It's also a great emergency preparedness station when a hurricane sweeps through, which is really common in New Orleans. It's got solar panels, um, so you can charge your phone. Uh, they'll be able to set up, they set up internet nearby so people can fill out their FEMA applications. Um, and there's also water, Water management by having downspout planters attached to it that hold onto the water and keep it from um, ending up in the sewage system. And uh, it has a, a little atmospheric pressure thing. They can like send out weather alerts to folks to let people know about the way in which the microclimates are uh, impacting folks. So you just get a little text alert. Hey, it's really hot in your neighborhood. Here are the things you should be doing to keep yourself safe. Or gosh, a flood is coming. Here's, you should probably be leaving and going to high ground so that to, to, to um, connect to the community, to heat and to flooding. But a lot of the 1% solutions that we think of Things like densifying the tree canopy cover can be really helpful. Um, I used to work for the Public Housing Authority for Massachusetts, Massachusetts State-aided public housing, and sometimes folks don't always know the the multiple benefits of trees. Uh, There was a a housing authority that they were just getting sick of the maintenance bills that came with raking the leaves every fall in New England. Um, So they cut down all of the trees outside of the local housing authority. The next rainstorm that came through, they saw about two feet of water collecting in the basement of the building, which is where all of the utilities were. So you've got the the heating elements, you've got the water heating elements in that space. Um, And then residents utility bills also went up in the summer because that tree was no longer casting shade. Um, So a lot of these 1% solutions are ones that uh, can do double duty. Um, And they're also ones that you need to involve residents in the long-term stewardship of. It's a hard life out there for an urban tree. Um, I don't know what it is nationally, but in, in New England, the average life of an urban tree is somewhere between six and nine years um, for, for newly planted ones. So it can be really harsh and that's why you need that, that stewardship. That's why you need to ask. That's why you need to have conversations with residents about what their needs are and what are the different solutions so that they can be the ones to help care for that infrastructure, make sure that it stays, make sure that it's healthy.
0: Thank you. And I wanted to, to really turn back to, to Bryn. Um, I'm intrigued by Climate Resolve's role in testing myriad cool pavement materials throughout Los Angeles. Because I know that's something you've been involved in. And as a, as a scientist by training myself, anything testing, I, you got my interest, right? So um, what have you learned about these materials, including any benefits or drawbacks you might like to share?
2: sure uh, and i want i have to start by giving credit to our our city and county our public sector partners who have really kind of made this this open invitation that our our, our urban environment can be like a living lab we are up for trying out new cool pavement products um and so welcoming in different private manufacturers to test new, um, new configurations and, um, and definitely working with community members along the way to get their take on like what they like and don't like. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we you know, enlist researchers to collect before and after data to help kind of make the case um, and learn lessons along the way of what, what's working best and what uh, what needs some tweaking still. Um yeah so we some you know part of what we've learned identifying um, the conditions where the cooling benefits of reflective materials are really most uh, enduring and impactful uh, so part of that we've learned, you know, the larger the application, the better, the more effective it is at cooling down. Um, seems, you know, kind of obvious, but, um, part of that too is just trying to avoid being, um, adjacent to fresh blacktop that goes down because that like tar tire tracks can, um, can cover up that the cool pavement application, um, and, and reduce its effectiveness. Um, um, you know, where we have street cleaning that helps keep the surface um, nice and, and reflective too. Um, you know, I mentioned the community input we found they they like a little bit like, um, not as bright, not as light colored of a surface, uh, which which they were kind of worried if someone like spills their slurpee, it starts to look dirty. And so they we reconfigured the cool pavement so it's a little bit more of like a neutral colored gray nowadays. Um, and so far, working just putting cool pavement down on um lower traffic volume streets um which is where it it, it holds up a little bit better um so you will know, find that that there's there's less like I mentioned earlier less maintenance need, less wear and tear, so that's part of what we've been able to to document. Um, and also finding with that um, light reflectivity better visibility at night, um, so improving safety there for um, people walking or biking out on the street at night. Um, not as much of a of a street lighting need um, but you know, so we'll keep keep testing, keep kind of trying to improve the products that are that are out there, but um we're we're pretty excited about you know pretty committed to we're up over two hundred city blocks in the city of l a now with cool pavement on it. Um, targeting those hottest parts of town, uh, and there's a there's a cool roadway partnership um, that's developed between about nearly 30 cities um, across the country um, that are committed that have said you know they they're going to be putting out 70,000 lane miles um, in the next 10 years of pavement, and so trying to trying to push the industry to be doing to creating products that are that are durable for those higher volume roads too, so we can start to put it on our main our main arterials as well.
0: If you don't mind me following up very quickly with one question from the audience um, who wonders, can some surfaces absorb or really deal with rain and flood water better than others?
2: Sure, so there is porous pavement, um, which is the thing Kate mentioned. Uh, yeah, you know, it's, um it's, we're not using a whole lot of in LA. Um, we're working more on getting um, green infrastructure and bioswales out there to deal with our, our um, downpours, but uh, it, it, it is out there. It just, it will require a little bit more street cleaning too to make sure that those, um, the porousness uh, doesn't get clogged up with dirt and grime. You have to vacuum Wait. it. You have to vacuum your street/sidewalk, so it's a little hard unless
1: you're willing to do maintenance. It's something that's a little bit better for a driveway or a walkway, where you can get regular maintenance done on it.
0: That's super interesting. Well, I would love to end here today with one question, uh, really aimed at both of you, um, and this this is sort of our final thoughts question um, that I like to, you know, sort of ask everyone coming through. Um, what is the first step that you would really recommend that other U.S. or international locations grappling with the urban heat island effect, what do you recommend they consider as they seek to address this truly daunting challenge? So um, let's see, Bryn, why don't we start with you?
2: Sure. Um, Well, I start with the data as a starting point. You know, it's not the be-all end-all, but it can really help you identify the heat inequities um, that are there. Uh, and target your efforts um, to those hottest parts of town, um, and really, you know, you, we use JPL um, satellite data, which we found is the highest resolution, and so that lets us really kind of hone in on which features in our urban environment are radiating the most heat. Um, so those are our, some of our roofs and our um, and our roads, our asphalt roads, um, are what we then target some efforts on. Uh, But really, it needs to move beyond that then, and talking to people of how heat affects them um, and which solutions could best meet their needs. Um, So really would recommend kind of co-developing those solutions. It's a tool to to really build momentum for change and and cultivate local local leadership, do some power building. Um, A strategy that we like to use for place-based work is to bring on um, project interns from the neighborhood, um, work with established local leaders. Um, it helps kind of put a friendly face on the effort to make sure you're you're engaging in a way um, that really resonates with people uh, and and you can be responsive to what you hear um, and helps get away, get ahead of any like potential fears of of green displacement. Um, so you know trying to make sure it's it's um, a project kind of for the neighborhood, by the neighborhood, um, and and integrate as many like power building and placekeeping strategies that you can to show your commitment to that community.
0: Thanks, Bryn. And Kate, I would like to leave you with our final, final thoughts. Final, final word. Yeah.
1: Um, I think the first is to disavow, to just completely get rid of the notion that there's any 100% solution or any panacea that is going to keep us safe from this particular aspect of the climate crisis. What we're looking at, I think, is a a compilation of 1% solutions at the hyperlocal level. So paying attention to the block level, paying attention to the neighborhood level, because that's going to allow you to uh, engage and develop that long-term stewardship so that these solutions are both wise and stable. No one's going to be snapping off the trees if you're focusing on on sort of neighborhood uh, intervention and also ensured um, power and shared leadership and decision-making with residents. Um, I think that'll a lot of people who are in positions of power don't always recognize that the people who live in these communities are the experts about what needs to change and the way in which it needs to change and they have the only kind of expertise that you can't really learn from a book or from going to school it's it's their lived experience so um, reevaluating and rethinking who is the expert who needs to be at the table and who gets to make decisions of this hyper local process is a way to create stable wise long-lasting solutions
0: This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGUE's Innovation Station Virtual Event Series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. Government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www dot state dot gov.